Hello, and welcome to the Future of Coding. This is Steve Krauss. So today I have Pete Hunt on the podcast, who many of you may know as one of the original contributors to React.js and for his work evangelizing React.js in the, the broader open source community. If you have learned React, chances are you've seen a video of Pete talking about how, it's, how it works, because he, he was there giving those early talks back in the early days. So uh, the backstory is um, Pete uh, worked at Facebook, and he was, in his own words, the first corporate drone that, that Facebook put on the, the Instagram team when they acquired it to help with, quote, trust and safety. Uh, and there he, he led the charge building the Instagram web experience. And um, during the time he was building Instagram web, he needed something to help with front-end rendering and that led him to Jordan Walk and the React project and the rest is history. So I, uh, turns out I had actually met Pete at a party through um, work. He, was, he happened to be dating someone that I was working with at the, at the time. Um, he was showing me Instagram on the web, but I, I didn't and still don't use Instagram, so it didn't seem relevant to me. But then I saw in Hacker News this post by this closure script a guy David Nolan about the future of front end and MV star frameworks, and that post blew my mind. And then I watched the talk of Pete's that he linked to, and that blew my mind. And so ever since then, I've been obsessed with React, and obsessed with Closure, Closure Script, and obsessed with Pete. And so I, I messaged him, uh, and and asked to be friends. And and ever since that, he's been mentoring me uh, in a really thoughtful and clear headed way, as you'll you'll get a sense of in this conversation. Uh, now Pete is the CEO of his company, Smite, that he started to help other companies with the trust and safety problem that he helped Insta Instagram with when he joined. Um, the, the idea is if you have a service that allows users to upload content like photos or videos, uh, his service will allow is like an API that allows you to check if there is pornography or fraud or, or spam in that content in a real-time way so your system can be secure and safe. So it's, yeah, it's a really cool company and I think it's going well. So without any further ado, let me bring you Pete Hunt. So uh, today I have Pete Hunt here on the podcast. Welcome, Pete. Hey, Steve. How's it going? I'm doing well. How are you today? I'm great. Awesome. Good to hear it. Um, so many people from this podcast may know you from your work with React. So I thought we could start off the conversation by talking about the beginning of React. Um, so I'd be curious to hear about um, the problems at Instagram that, that you were facing that made you like want for something that kind of that like React that, that made you look for something that eventually, you know, led you to React. Sure, that's great. Um, so it's important to note that React actually existed before we acquired Instagram in 2012. And so we had been working on that for, for a while. I, I actually wasn't um, originally on the team. There was um, you know a handful of people, maybe two people or so working on it. And the problem came out of the ads team. So there is this really complicated user interface for you know building um, ads on Facebook. So this is this is really complicated because Number one, you're spending money through this thing, so it's got to be accurate. It, it actually has to be really consistent. 
Um, the other thing is that there's all sorts of different types of targeting you can do, all sorts of different types of ad units you can do, all sorts of different locales where you can um, show your ad, which may have you know internationalization concerns and localization concerns. So it's a really complicated PC UI and it's very interactive. And so there was this problem kind of towards you know the middle end of 2011 where there were all these kind of callbacks that could happen and if they arrived in different orders, the UI would converge to a different state. Um, which is really bad when you're trying to, you know, convince people to spend money through your thing and you want to show them what they're actually going to get by spending uh, on your platform. So uh, an engineer, Jordan, went off and started prototyping this thing that ended up becoming React. And you can kind of see some of the early experiments on GitHub under Fax.js, which I think is really cool. Um, Fast forward to 2012, we acquire this little company called Instagram. And Instagram was this really successful mobile app at that point. And they wanted to build out a web experience as part of their growth initiative. And we had this issue where we had all of these application servers written in Python, and they would talk to all these Postgres SQL uh, servers. Um, and there was no proxy in between them. so every database had a connection to every app server. And we had this constraint where we couldn't add any more app servers because there was there were too many connections basically to those databases. And so we had to deliver like a, like a best in class web experience that's dynamic and serves up personalized pages to everybody uh, without adding any CPU load onto the, um, the web servers, which is, you know, a pretty challenging thing to do. Um, so we decided to go with client-side rendering and we evaluated a bunch of potential solutions, you know, both inside of Facebook and out from outside of Facebook. And we decided to do a, um, a feature in React, which, um, you know, at that point had been put into production on one small thing on Facebook. And uh, during the course of that, that first feature, there were lots and lots of issues. Uh, the API wasn't stable, um, a lot of stuff you know, worked, but it, there weren't established best practices around it, or there were features that used to work and didn't work anymore. Um, so we discovered all of that. Probably the biggest challenge um, at that point was taking this, this you know, piece of software that was tied specifically to facebook.com and then doing kind of an internal open sourcing uh, to Instagram, which was run on an open source stack, uh, run on Amazon Web Services, uh, you know, just like any startups from that era would, would be set up. Uh, so there, there was that effort there. And then what ended up happening was we, we shipped those profile pages, which was the first feature built in React. And then that worked out pretty well and um, you know just started building more stuff. Yeah, that's amazing. Thanks for giving us some of the, the origin stories. Um, you mentioned briefly a place we could find like some of the early experiments with React. Could you just repeat that again. Where can we look for that? Uh, yeah, the original name was was called Faxjs, F-A-X-J-S. Mm. And if you if you Google that, you'll you'll find um, a repo on GitHub with that kind of original experiment. Cool. I, um, is there anything about Faxjs, like any stories in particular that come to mind that you'd want to share now? Yeah. Um, so. I guess like Fax.js was, was when it was kind of almost a, a personal project of Jordan's. So I don't think Fax.js ever went really into production or anything like that. But 
if you go take a look at that repository, you'll be struck by like a couple of things. Um, first of all, there's no JSX and it existed in a world before a lot of this JavaScript tooling was around. So before ES6, before Babel, before um, Webpack and all that. So it's, it's, it is really interesting taking a look at, at um, the design decisions that fell out of that. Um, so, the, so the syntax is actually a bit different than it is today, but the, the core ideas are there. And the second thing that you'll be struck with is that you know, the, the idea of server rendering and the idea of something like a React Native um, was in there from the beginning. So it was designed from, from day one to, to support multiple rendering backends. So it's, it's, I just really enjoy taking a look at technical history. So whether it's the first commit, first serious commit of a project and what the design kind of manifesto was of that project, or whether it's looking at, um, you know, where, for example, the web component standards came from and going back into the mailing list and seeing what those original discussions looked like or the original discussions around CSS. Um, or the original memos from Xerox Park around uh, model view controller. I think it's very, very interesting to see how those ideas were introduced and then what they evolved into. And then, you know, people are still fighting about every single one of those concepts today, even though that some of them are, you know, or all of them, I think, are decades old at this point. And so taking a look at how they were originally introduced and what we're fighting over now is, is always really, really interesting. Thanks so much for going into that. I, I think I'm also a kindred spirit in that uh, I'm trying to understand historically how a lot of these things came to be. Uh, so part of why I created this podcast and this whole research project is to like add some structure to this project that I'm, that I'm working on. Uh, and I think a lot of the listeners to this podcast are people who are trying to create like new frameworks and languages. Um, so let's see, I, have, I have a lot of questions. One question for you is um, you listed a few different histories and, and, and like people and places um, where you find interesting ideas. Uh, like I'm, I'm curious if you have a place on the internet that you have notes on these things or, or where else do you look? How do you structure your research? I don't know, just any, yeah, could you give us some advice on how to do that? That seems like a really useful thing that you, you do. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so, to, to just give you a really quick answer, uh, follow programmers on Twitter that were around in that era. Uh, so Kent Beck, for example, used to, or he, sorry, I used to work at Facebook and he still works at Facebook. Uh, and he, he's like the guy that invented unit testing and it, he's been around the industry for a long time. And so anytime that I think I have a new idea or a controversial opinion about something, I'll either, you know, think about, hey, has he, has he or anybody that he knows tweeted about this thing recently or blogged about it? Or maybe I'll just go and ask him and, and he'll give me you know, an interesting history lesson. Um, so there's identifying the people that, that really built this software you know, decades ago. Uh, that's, that's one place. There's another thing, which is the original wiki. Um, so Ward Cunningham uh, falls into that category of people that built all the you know, software decades ago. And he built the original wiki, and it's hosted on a place called C2. And you can see a lot of you know, discussion about technical topics um, you know, that, that happened from the 90s until today. 
and they're referencing a lot of stuff that happened even before the 90s. And so it's a great way to kind of like look in and see, you know, hey, you know, object-oriented programming got really popular um, starting in the, the kind of mid to late 90s. Uh, what were they fighting about back then? What was the influences? Was small talk really as influential as everybody says it was? Um, was it really so amazing or are there downsides to it as well? And you can really get a, a great impression from, from there as well. Um, and the other thing you can do is, is identify, you know, if there are standards bodies like, um, like W3C, for example, has all of their mailing lists archived and there's a lot of other you know, organizations like that that have archived mailing lists that you can take a look at and, um, and follow along in the original discussions. But basically the, the point is try to track down the primary source if you can. That's really great advice. I was wondering if um, you could, you, you listed Kent Beck, um, who is someone I also uh, would agree is, is definitely someone to pay attention to. I, uh, his Prune article in particular, I don't know, did you, did you follow, see, see what his work on Prune? Yeah, I was still at Facebook when he was working on it, actually. So I was kind of following along internally. Um, and then I think I left before he finished it, but he published a postmortem that was public, I believe. Yeah, so all I saw was the postmortem because I was never at Facebook. Um, and I, I spent a few months actually trying to like retrace his steps a little bit. Uh, so anyways, I, I think he's great. I was wondering if you, had, if you could just list off the top of your head another handful of people to follow on Twitter who you think are you know outstanding here. Oh, man. Um... Well, you know, Mark Andreessen is, is a, a venture capitalist now, but he's got a lot of, if you search for his name throughout the archives, you'll find a lot of, you know, stuff about browser history and the history of the web and HTML and, and stuff like that. And he, one thing that I really like uh, is he gives a very, very impassioned argument for the font tag. Uh, and, you, you know, we accept today that the font tag is is this universally bad idea and that css is uh or at least the idea of of having a, a separate style sheet from from semantics is is almost universally accepted as a good idea uh, but a lot of the really smart people that worked in the beginnings of the web disagreed uh, substantially so uh mark andreessen his original news group posts are really interesting um alan Kay. Uh, he's the, you know, among other things, user interface, um, he, he invented a lot of user interface paradigms that we see today, but also, um, he's one of the people that worked on small talk. Um, Joe Armstrong worked on Erlang. Who else? Um, not to say that there aren't people today that are, are, are doing interesting things, but it's always good to, to know your history. Um, uh, John Carmack and all the old game programmers. Um, one thing, one observation that I found is that uh, you really want to start paying attention and talking to the people solving the really, really difficult problems. As in, if you don't solve this this technical problem with with something that is really hasn't been done before, the business dies. Uh, and so that's where you start to get the really innovative and interesting technologies. And so that's why, for example, you see all this really, really great cutting-edge distributed systems research coming out of Google uh, because they hit a larger scale than anyone ever had and so they had to push you know technology forward similarly um, a lot of the AAA game companies have to do things with hardware that have never done before because the um, the games have to do more they have to do a bunch of innovative stuff in terms of managing state in terms of 
you know, drawing performantly, managing the network, that type of thing. So I like to to follow game programmers as well and and pay attention to what they're doing. So a good example is the other day, um, you know, I was just I, there's this notion of immediate mode GUIs in game programming, and it's always intrigued me, but I've never been convinced that it's fully practical. Uh, but somebody pointed me to uh, the documentation for the latest um, version of the Unreal Engine. And the way that you build UIs in the Unreal Engine, while it's in C++, uh, the programming model is, is components and, you know, passing components into other components to compose, you know, uh, composite components. And it handles events through callbacks and they introduce a domain-specific language for com connecting components together in C++. And I realized that it's, it's very similar to React. And it's always interesting to see how those ideas, um, whether they cross-pollinated or people just came to the same conclusion, it's always just really interesting to take a look at that. Great, thanks. Uh, given that uh, you've talked about React uh, a lot in a lot of other places and React is pretty popular, we don't have to give everyone a full understanding of what React is. They can find that elsewhere. But if you wanted to maybe take a minute or two to give like a brief description of how you see React and the problems it solves. In particular, if you could emphasize what things about React, like what are the innovations that React brought to the scene, uh, that'd be helpful. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Um, and I think we can touch on uh, what I think is the most important and relevant idea to, to your project as well. So I'm cool. excited to, to get to that. Uh, so the core idea with React, um, and this is, this is the only thing that matters, uh, so I don't view components as a React innovation. Components have been around forever. You, you build any sort of native application on Windows or, or um, Mac OS or iOS, there's a notion of a component. Sometimes they call it a view, whatever. Um, but the idea of composing components out of other components, it's been around since the dawn of time. I don't know why we weren't doing it on the web. Um, I think we were just, I don't know, being stubborn or something. But that's not a new innovation. The new innovation is um, basically making your your view or your components, how it renders, a pure function of some underlying data model. So you can think of this as one-way data binding. So you've got this underlying data model or data structure, and then you write a function that says, given this data structure, this is the HTML and the CSS I want to show up on the page to render the UI. And um, React's key innovation was being able to do that at any point in time. So if you know something slightly changes in your data model, the way that you used to implement that um, was uh, you would you know pick up on that change and then you would you know directly change the user interface. So there would be phase one where you paint the initial user interface, you render the initial markup and in CSS. And then there was the update phase where you would observe a change in your data model and then you would update that HTML or CSS as it existed on the page. And the problem is, you know, if you're rendering that once and then mutating it, understanding all the different ways that data, that user interface can change is really hard. Uh, with React, you, you conceptually just throw out all of the existing state that in your application, all the existing markup and CSS that you've rendered and, and just render it fresh. And the magic of React is, is that React makes that um, efficient and uh, gives you a good user experience on top of that. So that does, um, that makes it a lot easier for you to predict what your UI is going to look like. It makes it a lot easier to test. Um, there's some interesting 
um, performance and, and developer experience characteristics in there, but that's, that's kind of the big innovation that it had. Great. And um, while we're at it, maybe you could just talk a bit about um, the core underlying idea behind Flux. Um, so I found this quote of yours, it was like an answer to a question on Quora, where you said that it's Flux like Elm is effectively just an implementation of event sourcing, which first appeared over a decade ago, which is loosely based on the command pattern introduced by the Gang of Four in 1994. So if you could just kind of unpack that um, a little bit and, ex and explain what Flux is, that'd be helpful. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's some history right there. Um, <laughs> so uh, this is something that's really interesting, right? Like um, the, the, uh, the, the idea of event sourcing, um, there's a related concept called CQRS, and it's from like the Microsoft Enterprise world, which is not a world that a lot of like front end engineers or, or open source people, you know, really know that much about or interact with. Uh, but it, so they, a lot of people think that Flux is some new novel idea, but it's been around forever. The idea here is that um, it, Flux tries to solve one of the, one of the problems with React. So, so the really good thing about React is that everything is encapsulated. Um, you pass into a component that data model that I mentioned, you pass in only the data that it needs, and then it can render the UI. Now the problem is your component might be made up of lots of other components. And if a component really deep in your hierarchy that you might not even know you use because you use another component that actually uses that, uh, might request an additional piece of data. And so what that means is that it breaks every component that uses it because you have to pass that piece of data into that component throughout the hierarchy. So that's a, uh, you know, that's a, that's a big problem. And then eventually you end up with these interfaces to these components that don't make a lot of sense because you're passing, for example, the currently logged in user into every single component, or you're passing in the, you know, client side cache into every single component. And so Flux uh, tries to solve this problem by introducing um, some global state. So rather than passing in the, the currently logged in user into every component, you can just query a singleton and you can say, hey, I, uh, I want to get the, the currently logged in user and it'll return the, the currently logged in user. Um, and so when you hear global state or global variables, like a, a lot of people have been taught that global variables are bad. Um, and that's not entirely true. As long as you know where the global variables are, and as long as you have a way of, of um, coordinating rights to them. So if they're, if they're global, um, for example, if they're global read-only variables, then those are just constants and those are great. If they're global variables that are mutable, but you can, can very finely control when they're written to and coordinate that, um, then they're also actually pretty great. Glo global variables really get you in trouble when either they're implicit, so you don't know there are global variables, their expectation is that there isn't a global variable and there is one, or um, when you have multiple pieces of code uh, or, or threads writing to the same global variable, that can get you in trouble too. Uh, so what Flux does is Flux basically coordinates writes to the global state. And the way it does it is using something called the command pattern. So rather than having any piece of code in your application be able to write to uh, you know, your global state, like change the user that's logged in or, or update a user model or something. Um, you instead dispatch these logical events. 
And so you create a new object and it'll be called maybe the login event. Uh, and then you put that into a queue and then you have something called a reducer or a store that will pull events off of that queue and then update the global state and then trigger the re-renders um, you know, across your application as needed. And so there's a, a couple of advantages to this. Uh, first of all, by um, you know, forcing people to use a relatively small number of fixed commands or fixed events, um, you limit the number of ways that those, that global state can change. The second thing is that all of the changes to global state are in one place in your reducer or in your store. And the third thing is that it's, it becomes a lot easier to debug because you have the history of all of those events. You can introspect it and you can replay it and rewind it and you can say, um, oh man, there's, there's a bug in my application. You get, you get the application into that state and then you can see the events that led up to that bug. Um, and so that's a, you know, a really powerful um, kind of approach to this. Thanks for giving us the summary. Uh, for anyone who's listening who uh, hasn't heard about React or Flux before or doesn't know uh, what this is, um, I, I think Pete's, uh, like, you should just know that um, it takes like hours and hours to, for this stuff to, to make sense, or at least it did for me. So um, I think uh, just in case uh, that, was, that confused anybody, um, th there are like hours and hours of video where Pete like explains and other people uh, kind of how this stuff works. So I thought I'd just give that caveat. Um, but, but thanks for, for going over it, Pete. That was, that was great. Um, and it, it made me think of this, um, this, this trade-off, this technical design trade-off, uh, this argument I, was, I have with my friend, uh, Samantha John of Hopscotch, who is also a, a student of Alan Kay. She um, like, is inspired by a lot of his work. Um, she thinks that the current um, obsession with the command pattern, which is now in, in favor, partially because of, the, like, mainly because of the success of React and Flux, is, is a fad. She thinks that, like, a, a, a language like Erlang, uh, where, like, it's kind of more organic and anything can change state, and it's, it's much more, um, it's much less, like, command and control, much more organic. Um, she thinks that's more kind of the, f the future, and I disagree with her. I'm, I'm kind of more in the React school of thought. Um, how do you think, do you think that this is like a fad, or do you think this is like kind of the way, the way things are going? Yeah, uh, so I actually tend to, to agree that the command pattern's overused. I don't think we necessarily have to allocate objects, and um, I've never seen a ton of value in that being able to audit every event that happened and being able to replay it um, simply because if I have the bug, I'll just drop logging statements um, or I'll, I'll bring in some sort of lo like logging abstraction where I can log that in developer mode. Uh, the I think the idea of saying, hey, though, we're going to have one plate, we're going to have global mutable state and we're going to say that's an okay thing to have because um, global mutable state it's introspectable, it's serializable a lot of the time, and it's, it's easy to understand and test, um, you know, depending on how you implement, if you implement it as a, a singleton. Um, and then having basically what's called a facade. So rather than being able to mutate these uh, global, this global state directly, you have um, a small uh, set of functions that do it on behalf of your components. 
and those can um, basically throw exceptions or, or return nulls or something uh, indicating that you're using the, the API wrong. I think that accomplishes a lot of the same, uh, it gets you a lot of those same properties that Flux tries to get you, um, but it's, it's faster and there's less typing. Um, and that's the technique that I generally use is, um, is I, I just kind of create a, a set of modules that represent the global state and I, I think about a fixed API for them I write a lot of tests around those, and then I have the rest of my components talk to them. Um, I'm not sure where the Erlang actor model fits into that. Um, personally, I I haven't really had um, a lot of experience actually implementing in Erlang, um, but I, I do understand the actor model's influence on a lot of systems. Um, but we can we can get into that if you'd like. But I, you know I don't I don't know where you wanted to go with that. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for clarifying. Uh, okay. So my my next question uh, is uh, kind of more on the emotional side of things. So I, I think a number of the people who listen to this podcast and me in particular um, see what you did by creating this new way to think about user interfaces and, and create this um, like help create a massively successful open source project is like something that they uh, aspire to do themselves. And um, I'm, I'm curious to get a sense of how that feels in the early days. Like, it, it like you bet the future of Instagram on like this new React thing. Like, how did you know? And like, how did your like, certainty that this was gonna be the future and this was gonna work out grow over time? And like, especially, because what's crazy about you is that you wanna get, like, React goes against so many of the established best practices in, in, in the industry. And like, you, you kind of took that on as your, um, like mantra, like rethinking best practices, like trademark. So like, how did you know and how did your confidence in, in React and in yourself grow over time? Well, there's, there's a couple things there. So first of all, uh, React was not created to be a successful open source project. It was created to solve Facebook's problems and Facebook's problems only. And if it only did that, like it would have been a success. And so there were like maybe three or four competing technologies within Facebook at the time that were trying to be the next way that we write applications. Cause you know, there's a lot of great programmers at, at Facebook working on this stuff. And so by the time, um, so, so React had been baked off against a couple things. By the time I got there, I baked it off against a couple solutions, um, you know, down the line, mobile search and ads and all these other teams were considering React versus other technologies. And I was, you know, they would interview me about my experience with React. We would compare notes on all of our benchmarks, on all of our developer experiences, on the, you know, what the code maintenance burden was, the, the you know, the byte payload or the, the download size and the TTI and all that. And so by the time we got around to open sourcing, like I knew this thing was fast. Uh, you know, any, any, any technical concern that that could be brought up i was pretty confident that that we were right on that so the the real question i think is um you know why did we you, you know choose to open source this and when we started using react it was basically like oh my god this developer experience is so good uh, so much better than what we used to do with um kind of facebook's internal equivalent of jquery uh 
And then we looked at kind of what the open source community was doing with these templating languages. We were like, we know that that's not going to work in a million years. Uh, so let's let's uh, let's open source this thing. And so the real challenge, uh, we never actually knew whether it was going to be successful in open source. We thought that people would like it, um, but it was not initially well received. You know, again, there were a lot of people that really hated this technology. A lot of people that thought we were wrong, and it took. Um, it took a lot of time to figure out how to message this thing because you can't just come in and say like, everybody's wrong and we're right. Blah, 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 blah. That's not, um, that's not really. Well, I think an... You did Sorry. though a little bit. <laughs> right? Well, no? which, which talk. Um, so there was the original JS conf us talk where we kind of came in and we said, Hey, this is how we build, um, user interfaces, uh, at Facebook. And it was kind of just like a tutorial. And then there's another way, which was the second talk, which was the one that I did, which was basically like, hey, here's why React is different. Um, the argument that we were trying to make is that, hey, this is um, these are the problems that we had. Here's the solution we came up with. And here's what makes our solution different. And we had a lot of caveats in there that said, you know, hey, this might not work for you. Uh, there are these certain edge cases where it's actually slower than what you're doing today. But what we found was this was a better set of trade-offs. And really what we focused on was not educating people on how to use React or how to build their next application with it. It was more about um, this is what makes it unique and interesting. And what that did was it kind of you know disarmed people. They were like, oh, you know, this is actually really interesting. We focused much more on the implementation than the, than the, the you know, how to use it. And people appreciated that. And the second thing it did was it recruited uh, people into the community that were really passionate about what it does differently. And so you see these big shots in the React community now, like Ben, um, like Sophie Alpert and uh, Dan Abramov and Chang Lu and all these these people. Uh, they were originally recruited because I think they found the internals of React to be interesting. Um, or at least some of the ideas around it to be really interesting, rather than oh, I built my my application in you know three less days than it otherwise would have taken. Cool. So, could you talk about um, a bit about how? Because uh, from my perspective, uh, you know, it seemed like React was inevitable and it just kind of happened magically. But you were more on the ground floor, making it grow, and uh, it seemed like like you're flying around to conferences telling people about evangelizing it. So could you, I don't know, talk through like how it became adopted, uh, how, how that felt, um, like what were like some of the key milestones or like key, the key things that happened that like made it, uh, that like moved along? Yeah, so there was JSConf US, which was the original announcement. Um, everybody hated it. Uh, then there was JSConf EU, uh, which got some more people excited about it. Um, we, we wanted to support everybody a lot, so we were in IRC like almost 24-7. People would come in and ask a question, and we would answer it. Uh, some people would, would camp on Stack Overflow and answer those questions. But basically, like the, the idea was we wanted to recruit um, and, and basically keep those people engaged in the community because hopefully they could help out, and that ended up working out nicely. Um, so the number one thing was like, just supporting the hell out of people. The, the you know, second big milestone that happened or third big milestone that happened was when um, David Nolan got involved. 
uh, and kind of brought in the closure script community and they he wrote this blog post called the future of JavaScript MVCs and he was kind of like hey this react thing solves a missing piece that we've had in the closure script community for a long time and it's got a programming model that I really like so that was um, you know a big noticeable uptick in the, the use of react so again you know what we're doing right now is is recruiting in passionate early adopters and uh, that started to slowly turn into some real production usage of react outside of the Facebook um, companies and then fast forward maybe a, a year or so flux is introduced and that solves a problem that the community had um, we started talking at kind of bigger, more corporate-y conferences like Facebook's F8, and then eventually put on a React conference for all of the users. And then that started to inspire a lot of confidence in people um, to use React. And so then all these big companies started actually using React. And once you've got uh, you know some pr real-world production usage, we, we had this wiki page where people could add you know, a link to their, their service and where they were using React in production. And I, we would point people to that when they're like, hey, my boss doesn't know if I should use this new technology. We said, well, you know, did you know that Facebook is using it, Instagram's using it, Airbnb and um, the New York Times and all these other other well-known brands. So that was, that was helpful too. Uh, then, you know, we just started to see this big explosion in, in um, the usage of, the, of React throughout the community and the kind of the the snowball was was rolling down the hill at that point. Um, React Native was another big milestone um, in in React's kind of adoption because that opened up the, the world of mobile developers. So, I uh, I found React because of David Nolan's article that you mentioned, and uh, I was immediately convinced after reading that article and then watching your rethink, rethinking best practices talk, which which I think he links to in the um, in that essay. So I can definitely see how that was a big milestone. I didn't realize how big of a milestone that was in your mind, uh, but but that's that's how you got me. So it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, you, uh, you know that wasn't an accident either. Um, so like, there's a lot of you know I was going to conferences and I was connecting with people on Twitter and stuff like that, and the way that got put together was there's this guy Brandon Bloom who's a game programmer who. Um, you guys should all follow on Twitter because he's um, he's really smart. And he sent me a message or tweeted at me or something. And he was like, hey, I, I saw your talk. Uh, did you know that this is how like all game engines are implemented? Um, and I was like, what? I don't know very much about graphics. And, and he taught me through it and explained it to me. And he's like, um, he, he was in New York. And I was like, oh, I'm flying to New York. We should meet up. So we met up over a cup of coffee and he's like, I'm going to bring my friend David Nolan um, and he's going to he's going to come sit in on our conversation. And so uh, us, the three of us were just kind of at a coffee shop somewhere in New York uh, talking about React. And then, um, you know, he pops into the IRC channel, has a bunch of questions as he's building his first version of his React bindings. And we're all kind of, you know, again, continuing this this level of support that we had. And that blog post pops out and uh, changed the game for for React. So that was, you know, that wasn't like, oh, I stumbled upon this technology and I was struck by how awesome it is. It's like none of this stuff, um, like, yeah, things go viral, but they go viral after a lot of boots on the ground effort. Oh, I'm so glad. 
that that's uh, that that's how it actually happened because it that's so empowering that like it isn't just random what goes viral and what doesn't if you work really hard and, and do the work you know it, it'll eventually work out so I'm, I'm I'm really glad that that's how it happened in reality and that I have it on this this podcast that's really inspiring yeah yeah I mean there are things you got to get right like you got to write documentation and you got to build a community that uh, you need to foster a community that that is inclusive and gets everybody excited about working on the tech. Uh, and um, you need to also communicate your project really well. So you need to say, hey, this is why you should pay attention to our project. And it's got, to, you, you get like three bullet points, three single sentences to, to communicate why your project is different and worthy of someone's attention. And uh, like it's faster and it's smaller and it's lightweight are not real reasons like those <laughs> you know, you've, sac- you've got to sacrifice something right because otherwise react would be smaller and lighter weight right so what are you sacrificing totally um so one thing i saw on the internet that caught my attention when i was preparing for this interview is that uh, you, there was a quote where you talked about how you replied to every hater comment on twitter and is that is that something that you thought was effective do you still do that now uh like, tell me more about that oh yeah that was actually reddit uh, so we would post it to Reddit and there would just be like all of these salty programmers would just reply and trash on like, oh my God, you're putting HTML in your JavaScript. It's so bad. Or like, who is Facebook to tell us how to build applications when we have this thing from Google and Google's way, got way nicer products than Facebook, um, whatever it is. And uh, I replied to every single one of those. And you know what? Like, some of these people had legitimate concerns. Um, there's, I've actually found in my personal experience, there's very few real trolls that are just trying to troll and just trying to piss you off. There's a lot of arrogant people and there's a lot of people um, that have strong opinions and don't do a great job of expressing them in a respectful way, but their, their goal is not to piss you off. They actually have legitimate concerns. And the way that I thought about it was, um, you know, I, I viewed every single one of those concerns as my fault because either the technology didn't do what it needed to do, or they, as in they had a legitimate technical concern, or uh, they didn't have a legitimate technical concern and we failed communicating that to them. And so if you just say like, hey, all of these complaints on Reddit are actually... Um, legitimate or have a kernel of truth to them and they're all my fault, um, you start to do a lot of self-improvement really quickly. Um, and so that's why I think the messaging around React got to be, um, I thought, very, very crisp within the first nine months of of it being open sourced. And you know that, that messaging, like branding it the virtual DOM that now gets a lot of flack and criticism uh, but I stand by it. You know, it's not 100% accurate, but if you've got someone's attention for five minutes and you want to explain how React works, uh, Virtual DOM is like a great way to do that. Really interesting. I think uh, re- replying to all the haters as a way to, to hone your message, all the nested haters and Hacker News and Reddit, that's, uh, I think that's a really funny way to, to hone your message. I guess when your uh, audience is programmers, uh, you might as well yeah, talk to them and hear their concerns, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, the, the answer to any technical question um, should be, or, or any one of these, these haters, I think, um, should be, yes, you're right, and we're gonna fix that, 
no, you're wrong because, um, and here's a link to the documentation, or we should write documentation on that, or you're right, but we made a calculated trade-off and here's why, and here's a link to the discussion as to why we made that trade-off. And, and if you can't do any of those, um, then you you might be deluding yourself a little bit. You gotta really be, um, you gotta really look at yourself uh, and your project critically and assume good faith on all sides. Okay, yeah, I think that's a really good clarification. You're not like our president just replying to haters, you know, ad hoc, you know, you're like thoughtfully responding to each concern in a systematic way. I think that's a good, a good qualification to make. Yeah, yeah, like uh, you put um, HTML in your CSS and that violates separations of concerns, says somebody. The answer to that is, well, no, like, like we view that as separation of technologies, not concerns. Um, but you're right, we didn't message that very well. So like we're gonna create a, a page in the documentation about that. And then, um, you know, the uh, the next response to that is, well, designers, uh, you know, don't want to look at JavaScript. They only want to look at HTML and CSS. And then the, the response to that one is a little different, right? It's not like we failed the documentation. It's like we're making a, a conscious trade-off where we say, hey, the designers got to power through some JavaScript in order to contribute. Um, and what you get for that is very, very much increased productivity for your front end engineers. And we think that that trade-off is worth it. What have you learned, uh, what are like the hard lessons that you learned creating a massively successful open source project? Or put another way, what are your biggest regrets? What would you do differently? Sure, so the the big thing that I learned, which I think is particularly relevant to, to what you're doing with your project, is I, I see this like every day a new project comes out. Um, people conflate the idea of making a making a, a framework or a library or a software package that makes programming easier for programmers and making programming more accessible and inclusive to a wider audience. So I firmly believe that the tools that you use to introduce somebody to programming um, look very, very different than the tools that you give somebody who already knows how to program and make them more effective. And if you think of a lot of the early criticisms of React, which was, um, hey, we have this, you know, people were using template languages before, which are really, really simple and easy to pick up, even for non-programmers or people who can't program very well. Well, the downside for that is that when your UI gets really complicated, you really do need a, a powerful programming language to, to express what you need to express. And React fully embraces that. So React, you know, is, I would say React is harder for people um, that don't know how to, uh, or almost impossible to use for anybody who doesn't know how to code. Um, whereas a templating language like Mustache, you might be able to use if you don't know how to code. But building a complex application in React for somebody who knows how to code is much, much, much easier than, than building something in, in handlebars or Mustache templates. Um, so that's, I think, a really important concept that I see so many companies and so many projects get wrong. Like pick your audience. It's either experienced programmers that are building applications that are going to production, or it's you know people trying to learn programming and you're trying to build an educational tool. Don't try to do both. Uh, the you also asked um, kind of what we uh, what we could have done better, and what I the big mistake that I think we made, and I I didn't push for this hard enough, 
was I wanted to have some kind of certification process. Now this sounds like a, a lot of bureaucracy, but basically it's like a GitHub badge where you could put it on your project and it could say like certified by the React team or something. And we could have some people, um, we would have basically like a checklist of things that you would have to, criteria you would have to meet in order for you to get that badge. And we would have a network of kind of trusted individuals in the community that would bless certain projects. And so what that does is like, when you're going and looking for a type ahead component or a table component, um, you could have some guarantee that, oh, this thing is gonna be accessible. This thing is gonna work cross browser. This thing is adequately styleable so I can drop it into my application without forking it, that type of thing. That answer your question? Totally, yeah, those are great. Um, I wanna go back to the, the first point you made, because I think that's a really interesting point that I agree with in some ways and disagree with in others, and I would like to flesh it out a little more. So to me, it sounds like what you were saying is that when you're building, the, the tools that experts use are going to look different than the tools that beginners use, uh, which makes sense, like at first blush, like, you know, beginners tools are gonna look like MIT scratch programming language and expert tools can look more like uh, like a, a good text editor and React code. Like that, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense to me. There are some places, however, where beginners and experts use the same tools, like musical instruments, like a guitar and a drum set. They're the, the same tools that, be, that beginners and experts use. But in other industries, they're, you know, it's different. You know, beginners use some tools and the experts use different tools. So I'm, I could see the argument that in some cases, the tools that beginners get and the tools that experts get are different. But I don't see any reason why, like from first principles, those need to be different tools. Does um, that make sense? What do you think to that? Yeah, about that. Yeah. So uh, I'm trying. There's a really good blog post uh, about this that I, I can't remember what it is, uh, but the musical instrument analogy really got me going down this path. Um, it's like I could I would compare like uh, playing the guitar to Guitar Hero. You know what I mean? Like Guitar Hero is really. Um, it's, it's for everybody, you know, it's, it's really democratized. Anybody can pick up Guitar Hero and play Guitar Hero. Um, you gotta invest a serious amount of time into playing the guitar uh, to actually play the guitar. Um, and I think that, uh, for that analogy anyway, um, it's really about how structured or unstructured it is. Um, so how many, um, how many different directions can you, can you take the tool? Um, and with beginners need a lot of direction and experts uh, need it in some places and don't need it in other places. You know, I'm not sure if that analogy is really holding up, but, but kind of um, what I'm, when I think about the beginners versus experts thing in the JavaScript world, it's like, uh, you know, beginner doesn't really want to understand, they, they just want to get something showing up on the screen um, because part of it is a motivation and an energy thing. And so you want to get something sh showing up on the screen and you don't want to have to show them the command line or educate them on the command line and you don't want to educate them on a type system and you don't want to educate them on all these other things just to get something to show up on the screen. Um, so like a lot of beginners really want like a, a, I think anyway, a text box in the browser where they type the code, they press run and it shows up and they don't have to deal with any of that other crap. Um, no professional wants that. I think that um, professionals want things that uh, run in the command line and can be plugged into their CI system and can be integrated into all these different things. 
So the, the command line tools are harder to use, but they're a lot more flexible. Whereas the in-browser editor takes a lot of decisions away from you, but you can get up and running in, in 30 seconds. Okay, yeah, I think, I think we're on the same page. Uh, we're like, I'm, I'm, I understand where your perspective is. Just, just to flesh it out a little bit more, um, like to, to kind of push back a little bit, um, I, I built a tool. Um, are you familiar with Google Blockly? Uh, it seemed to remember the name, but could you just explain it to me? Yeah, yeah, sure. I, I should describe it for everyone. Uh, so Google Blockly is a um, a library that Google makes that uh, allows you to very easily make a block-based programming language. So uh, it's kind of like MIT Scratch, but like you can make your own blocks. Is a general idea. Got so, it. so um, I came up with this idea. So my first idea was I was teaching children how to code. And um, I, I just gave them a text editor on a browser and told them, you know, type some stuff in, stuff will happen. But they had to learn HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, and it was a mess. So I came up with this idea, I'm going to make blocks where they can use like a jQuery type thing to create their web app. Um, they only get the blocks. It's one interface. They don't have to learn multiple languages. It's just like a jQuery type interface. And it, it was kind of successful, but very quickly I realized that that imperative jQuery style wasn't going to work. So I created a next version, which, is a, which was a... Um, a React tool, so so they would they would move the blocks around. You'd put like a div inside of a div, and you you put a reactive variable in there. So it, the code literally compiled to React. Like you you would mess with blocks, and it would compile to React code on the back end. And so from my perspective, this was so much easier for beginners. They could like make real apps in the React style, much easier than they could code code a simpler app by hand in HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. But at the same time, me as an expert, or, or my other friends who already knew how to type React code by hand, we also found it easier to use this tool. You know, I, I should, you know, caveat that with this tool was super buggy and hard to use, and like, you know, I'm not going to actually use it in production because it's not that good. But in principle, it seems like someone should be able to, be, like, it, it's reasonable to to imagine a tool that's both intuitive for beginners and also more powerful for experts. Um, or do you think, in principle, that that's like the wrong way to go? Uh, and it's much better to pick an audience. So um, just help me understand it. Is, are you building the blocks in a UI or in a text editor? So the blocks are the UI. Um, if you're by a computer and you want to check it out right now, um, or I'll send it to you later, but if you want to check it out right now, you can go to um, uh, stevekraus.github.io slash cycle. Okay. Um, um, yeah. ha hashtag like to do hyphen MVC, I think is cycle. So yeah, Steve GitHub.io. Yeah, I clearly should have sent this to you a while ago because I, I don't think this is the solution to anything. Um, here, I, I got, I got something. Cool, you got something. Cool. If you put hashtag to do hyphen MVC, you should get like a sample program. Um, I see. Um, so it's not beautiful. It's not perfect. Um, it just I, the only, the only reason to bring it up is just to kind of like help us flush out this idea because I think it's a really key discussion, like the audience and and in principle expert tools versus beginner tools. It's something I think about all the time. So I'd love to get your thoughts on it. Yeah. Um, so. Okay, so you can not only style, but you've also got like control flow and stuff like this in here. Um, so the like, so 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 sorry to to just um, make this conversation a little bit more focused. 
there's like a million things that I that I know are wrong with this this this, uh, this tool. Like I'm not continuing to work on it, so I don't want to go too deep into this tool. I just wanted I just wanted to use this tool to illustrate that because um, because what you said and I agree with you is that if you're teaching kids HTML, CSS, and JavaScript from from the start, you want to teach them those things first and then go to React. You don't want to start with React because React is more complicated. Um, but in this tool that I have here, React is less complicated than um, any other tools so like but I you know so what I'm getting at is I, th I think if you build the right interface there's a convergence between what the experts want to use and what the beginners want to use so, so I, I understand what you're saying in, in principle and I think that there's there's some truth to it right like if you build a better mousetrap that's universally better both beginners and experts will like it and if you build a mousetrap that is easy to do 80% of the the stuff you need to do and then provides nice and, and easy escape hatches for that last 20%, then that's that's great. Um, the the part that I would challenge like specifically with like the visual programming stuff, this is just um, an illustration of the type of, of thing that I wanted to talk about with the divergence of expert tools and beginner tools is like, mm -hmm. if I want to uh, diff two versions of this uh, or if I wanted to search and replace for a string within the whole application. Um, these types of things uh, people can do in the command line for, for decades. Uh, but every time that you introduce kind of a new tool uh, for beginners, like the, uh, at least for me, like the, the, the scary thing for beginners is like you got to teach the command line and the thing that they need to do. Um, and you want to just try to do one at a time. I think anyway. You, you probably educate more people than I do. So maybe you have a, a better opinion than me. But uh, I, I just do, I do think that the, the easy way for a beginner and the easy way for experts are sometimes aligned and sometimes different. Okay, great. Uh, so thanks for going down this rabbit hole with me. That was really helpful. So uh, React is very much the way most people think about designing user interfaces today. What do you think... What problems still exist in user interface design that need to be solved, um, or, or, yeah, in which way? In what problems need to uh, still need to be solved, uh, or do you think React has kind of solved most of them? Like, what's your perspective on the future of interface design? Uh, that, that's a that's a great question. Um, I think where the React model breaks down is. So React kind of assumes that it's running, if you think about React Native, actually, let's talk about mobile and React Native. Um, you kind of assume that all of the, the gestures and frame-by-frame -frame animations are implemented um, in some native component somewhere that is wrapped in a React component. And then you can build, you basically snap together all of those different React components um, on the JavaScript side. But if you have to do something that's really, really um, high performance, like frame-by-frame -frame animation type of thing, uh, you still implement that in native code. I think it would be interesting, and I may or may not have prototyped some of this, uh, what if we implemented a React-like uh, abstraction like all the way down um, to the metal? So rather than the current state of the world with both React Native and React Web, where you have this kind of object-oriented view hierarchy, and then React does its diff and then updates that, that object-oriented view hierarchy through the normal API. Like, what if we actually had a React-like, um, you know, UI library that spoke directly to the graphics engine? And what would that do to performance? Could we actually 
um, render frame by frame gestures in React uh, and use all the same t like nice uh, nice abstractions that we have and nice nice conceptual models that we have for rendering um, you know the the swipe gesture rather than just putting in a swipe gesture component. Uh, so that it, I think, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, um, that I think is really interesting. Uh, if you take a look at at some of the stuff that game programmers are doing with immediate mode GUIs or immediate mode user interfaces, there's a really interesting video um, on a website called Molly Rocket that uh, is that talks about it. It's it's really kind of uh, changes the way that you think about what React could do. Uh, now there's a lot of open questions on there and it remains to be seen whether that this is a solution that the market really needs. Like it seems like React Native is fast enough and people are using it, but still it could be uh, really interesting to, to make that change. I'm really glad you brought that up because that's something I've been thinking about a lot actually. Um, it, so in particular, the way I think about it, and you could tell me uh, if this is not the way you think about it. So it seems like people are constantly talking about ways to build a better version or better abstractions on top of JavaScript and make JavaScript better. And we kind of leave HTML and CSS the way they are uh, in, in a lot of ways. Uh, but, but from my perspective, while they do do some amazing things, like they have a lot of interesting components, like an input box, um, and they, they handle layout and stuff like that, it, it feels like we could build a, a better layout engine styling abstraction thing that maybe compiles down to HTML, CSS, or just writes down writes on the canvas directly. Um, and, and then we build bindings for Android and, and iOS and, and different things like that. Is, is that kind of what you're getting at? Like building, like kind of starting the renderer of things from scratch and like skipping the, the DOM, like doing it on our own? Yeah, so I, I've, yeah. Actually, I've actually done that. Um, <laughs> it's, it's really interesting uh, what happens when you, when you start to do that. Um, so like, I can tell you the approach that I took in my prototype, if that would be interesting. Yes. Um, okay, so there's uh, what you what you basically do is you want to start with a low with a fairly low level abstraction, and so there's this thing called libSDL, which is this kind of friendly API on top of OpenGL. So you 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 can say, hey, I want to render this text, or I want to render this this shape, or whatever, and I want to paint it to the screen. And so if you haven't done any graphics programming before, the way that it works is that you have a, a, an infinite loop and then you know every 16 milliseconds, your function gets called and you draw to the screen. Um, so you have like a ton and ton, of, you have frame by frame control over everything that happens. And so everything has to be really fast. And then um, what I did was I compiled that with this thing called mscripten and I had it running in a canvas in the browser with a mere 14 megabytes of JavaScript, but still. Um, so uh, the point is like we had this library that was running both in the browser and in a native application on my desktop. And then you can take a project from Facebook, uh, which is called Yoga, Facebook Yoga, which is an open source layout engine. And what you do is it's an implementation of Flexbox. Uh, it's written in C. You basically provide a function that can measure text. So you say, so the layout engine says, hey, text field, you have 300 pixels to fit your text. 
how high is like how much height do you need because of text wrapping and stuff. So I had to write a little code that integrated yoga with with that, um, and then uh, finally created like a tiny little React like uh, library in C to you know have the React kind of semantics of re-render every frame and and only relay out when you need to and then paint the pixels to the screen. So it was a really interesting project and I would love to see what would happen if I actually you know brought in a, a JavaScript engine into that project so you wouldn't have to write your UI in C. But it's um it is possible. It was like you know a couple hundred lines of code. It's not that crazy. The tooling's really good now. Like you already have an open source layout engine that you can plug into. You already have something that can compile C to the browser, uh, and all the dependencies are already ported over. So it's it's actually not too too hard to do. I'm so excited about this. Is there is the code open source? Do you have a postmortem written up somewhere, kind of like Prune? Like like where what are the next steps? I'm I'm sold. <laughs> I mean I don't know if I'm sold, but. Uh, <laughs> I, I could I could clean it up and post it somewhere. Okay, it's, I'll it's I'll, bu- I'll bug you for that offline. It's just a hack, cool. but it's it's a cool hack. And I'm more excited. Like to me, it it sounds a lot like um, like you know whatever you've come up with wouldn't be the thing. It's just the the thing that inspires the thing. Uh, so and anyways, I'm I'm jazzed about about this. So I'll I'll bug you about that offline to. To get to get that written up in in some way because I think that's really a really interesting line of inquiry. Who knows where it'll, where it'll go? Yeah, so I've been trying to convince. Um, this was before React Native, but I was trying to convince. You know, there there are all these like mobile web startups that are trying to build really fast mobile apps. Um, I was trying to convince them to build basically like a uh, a minimum set of browser primitives that can be really fast and then build your own browser such that you can like build a web app that targets this magic fast browser that you have but can also run in commodity browsers and i I don't know i think that's a really good idea you can see some of that stuff in the react native world with react native for web that might be solving that the same problem Um, but it could be an interesting approach yeah i think that's that's really brilliant uh okay so my last question um if you, if you have things to talk about, go for it. And if you don't have obvious things, we can skip this one. So um, it's like a two-part question. One, what technologies are exciting you today? Like what new frameworks or, or things should we keep our eye on um, in user interface design or, or even just or any, any sort of programming technologies that you are, you're jazzed about? On the other side, what technologies are, you think are distractions or overhyped in, the, in this space specifically? Um, and, then, and then the third part to that question is, what are you excited about in particular that nobody else is noticing? Ooh, that's interesting. Yet. So I, I started a company a couple of years ago called Smite, uh, which is um, trust and safety as a service, so anti-spam, anti-fraud, anti-harassment stuff. And we are mostly an infrastructure company. So we ingest event data, and we have to process it very quickly, and we have to learn from it very quickly. And so what's interesting about this is I see kind of what's going on at cutting edge on the infrastructure side, server side, as well as the cutting edge stuff um, from my you know, work with React. And so you see event sourcing on both sides of that coin. So Kafka is really, really huge. Everybody's using it um, on, the, on the server side, which is the kind of messaging bus that you use to implement something like Flux. So you 
put a message into Kafka, it comes out, you have some process running in a container that processes that and, and writes to a database. That's exactly the same way that Flux works. So I think that's really interesting. Um, in terms of what to, to keep our eye on, um, you know, on the front end, I'm not like, I feel like the state of the front end's pretty good. Like React Router's pretty good um, as of version four. Uh, you know, there's like a bunch of different inline styles, libraries you can choose and they're all fine. Um, I, I like mine because I like to type as little as possible and I, you know, really only care about desktop apps at this point in my career. Um, so I, I don't see, like in terms of actually like laying things out on the page and styling them, I think you got React uh, or React-like library, um, JSX style or a JSX style library for inline styles. And, um, you know, laying things out with Flexbox has been um, pretty awesome and I enjoy doing that. Uh, data fetching is is something that's still an open question. I mean, GraphQL is great, but I I'm not convinced by any of the client side implementations right now. Like I haven't heard of a lot of success outside of Facebook uh, with Relay, and I know that there was some churn on that. Um, we've used Apollo, and there are some you know bizarre design decisions within Apollo that I don't really understand uh, or agree with. Uh, and those are the, the two major ways to interact with GraphQL. Um, so I think that there's some room for innovation there uh, on the front end. Uh, if, the, if you were to kind of take a, take a step back and look at the, the big themes in software in general, and now I'm going to start to sound a little bit like a business guy, and I apologize for that. But I, I also you know, am still a programmer, but also do a lot of CEO-level stuff. And there are kind of three main themes that, that I see in the tech industry. The first is a relentless focus, focus on iteration speed. So you see this with things like React Hot Loader. You see this with things like continuous integration and continuous deployment. Um, you see this with every tool is getting faster and the idea is to get as many feedback cycles in as you can. The second big theme that I, I see, and I'm not sure if this is relevant, to front end as much as it is on infrastructure, but there is this relentless march towards variable costs for everything. So before you had cloud computing, you had to buy space in a data center and buy some servers, which are some fixed costs, and then you run some software on them. And then you know every, every month you have some power and rent costs, and those are your variable costs. With the cloud, you now have uh, variable costs where you can spin up and tune down VMs as you see fit and then those become variable costs. With functions as a service or serverless architectures which are getting pretty big now or about to get big, uh, that's even more fine-grained. It's um, So you're talking about on the per request level you're paying rather than on the amount of time the server's up. And that's again, you know, this this march towards variable costs, not fixed costs. And you can see this in how you buy software too. It's very rare now. Um, if you wanted to buy Photoshop, for example, you used to, to pay a couple hundred dollars and you would have Photoshop forever. Now you have, uh, you pay $10 a month or whatever it is for Adobe Creative Cloud. Um, and you're, you just buy a license. For um, so there's this, this, certainly this move from fixed cost to variable cost. The, the third thing that I 
would feel comfortable betting on, which a lot of people will disagree with, um, is I think you can always bet on centralization. So um, you're seeing more and more things over the last 10 years that used to be lots and lots of small companies or or peer-to-peer style applications or whatever they are, and they're all becoming centralized. And the reason for that is, again, when you centralize, it's a lot easier to um, to iterate quickly. Uh, basically, you don't have to worry about pushing the update out across a bunch of decentralized um, peers or whatever. You can just make that make one sweeping update. So those, I say, would be the three themes that I see um, when I'm looking at the industry as a whole. Cool. Thanks for going through that for me. Okay, so I want to be mindful of your time and wrap up now. Uh, I just want to say thanks so much for taking the time to do this. This was so much fun. I learned a lot just during this this talk, and uh, there's there's a lot that you you referred to that I have to now go do research on. So uh, so thank you. Um, no problem. I, yeah, I enjoyed both. it as well. It's always good to think about the the beliefs that you have and make sure that they're they're right or or question them every once in a while. Yeah. So. Um, so the last question I have for you is, um, uh, like, basically, what is like your API? What is the Pete Hunt user interface? Like, if people want to get in touch with you for various things, what are the channels? Like, Twitter, email. Are you hiring for your company? Like, what? A, how should people think about interfacing with you? Yeah, like Twitter is pretty good. I'm Floydophone, F L O Y D O P H O N E, on Twitter. Uh, we're also hiring at Smite um, Jobs at Smite.com. Uh, is another way to, to get in touch if you're looking for that. Uh, we're hiring for infrastructure, front end, um, sales, marketing, whatever. Like if you can help, we, we want you. Um, but yeah, yeah. Twitter is uh, Twitter is, is really really easy for me to interact with people. Great. Okay. Well, um, thanks so much again, and I'll talk to you soon. All right. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Bye.